I want to thank the elders for inviting me to bring God's Word to you this morning. Our text comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 7. And that'll also... Oh, it's already up there. Okay. It's also up on the overhead. Or what is it called? It's not an overhead anymore. I'm really old. I remember the overhead was new technology. All right, Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. One of the things I think that uh, is not well noted by you younger folk is that we live in the golden age of coffee. Those of you uh, who go back a few years will remember the dark days when we used to get coffee from vending machines, uh, and it came out that that sort of like brown is either sludge or like light brown water kind of thing, and that was all we had, and we were thankful for it. But now, but now we live, I, I, we, I know that we live in the golden age of coffee because I was driving across Nebraska and stopped at a Flying J and went in and they have these machines with the beans that are on top and you can press buttons and the thing will come around and it'll be organic Sumatra and it'll grind it and it'll come down and it'll brew it right there in front of you and it is dark and it's, it's foamy on top, it's, it's fresh, and, and this is at a truck stop. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and I saw it, and I beheld, and lo, it was good. <laughs> and, and because we live in the golden age of coffee, I think that we've stopped going to those visitor centers uh, on the highway, right? I mean, this is, this is a thing... These are the ones, again, because you young people don't, you don't know that you live in the golden age of coffee, and therefore you don't know what a visitor center is because your dad never goes there because your dad always goes to the truck stop to get the coffee. There are these big, the, the state, you know, you come, in, you come in to a new state, Nebraska or, or Texarkana or wherever, and there's, in, the, in, in between the toilets, there's the big map. And, 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 and you go there, you go look at that map, and I'm getting some nods, like some people remember their, their childhood, low these many years past, and, 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 and you can see where you are, because it says you are here, which is very helpful, and you can look back and you see where you've come from, but then you're also trying to figure out, because especially if you're the dad and you have the Lord's blessings in the back seat, how many more hours you have to go, how, how many Many more hours you have to go. And, 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 so, and you get oriented. Those, those maps are super useful just for understanding where you've been and 
where you're going. And we're at that point in the year now, it's the last week of the year, the day after Christmas, where start thinking about where we've been in the last year and where we're going to go in the coming year. And this text from Exodus, though it may not initially appear that way to you, this text from Exodus serves that same purpose of orientation. It shows us where we've been in Genesis and where we're going to go, where God is going to go. It takes us from Genesis toward the Exodus, and from it we'll see that the Lord is calling you to look forward in hope because God will take care of you. As we move from Genesis, you'll see that God preserves His church. God is continuing His work. God continues His work in Exodus chapter 1. I read this morning, I'm reading this morning from uh, the New American Standard, which is, uh, may not be the Bible that you all have with you, but I wanted to read it if you have, uh, and maybe if you have another translation, I don't know, but uh, there's the first word of this text really matters, and the first word is and, or now. Like, yeah, it's, it's going to be a long ride, I'm talking about the word and. Um, but it matters. It matters in this case. It's, it's the first word in a book of the Bible. And in books of the Bible, even the Old Testament, though they often, sentences in, in, in Hebrew often do begin with the word and. But books of the Bible don't have to begin with the word and. Sentences don't have to begin with the word and. You can do a quick survey of all the books of the Old Testament. There's not that many. Uh, and, and, there's, and, and you'll notice they don't all begin with the word and. And so it matters that that word and or now uh, picks up because this is what there's already there's a, a message there from the Lord that we're continuing a story that began in Genesis. That Exodus, even though there's a gap of, of, of some hundred years in between the tail end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, yet this really is the sequel. Uh, the books of Moses are... Uh, sort of a forerunner in, in modern-day publishing, uh, where you have the, nowadays you have the trilogies, and then, and then Harry Potter, I think, had seven books, and it just keeps on going with a series of books. Moses broke ground with that with his first smash five-book series, bestsellers. Uh, Genesis did so well that they demanded a sequel, and he came out with Exodus. Uh, and so that's what Exodus is, a sequel. And it tells us that God is going to continue what he did in Genesis. And so as we read Exodus, you have to pay attention to the book of Genesis. And so what, what we read in the first several verses, uh, first five verses of Exodus, really is a capsule summary of things that we already know that have already been stated in the book of Genesis. Now, this is a simple observation here. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Uh, the, the Israelites, the sons of Israel, uh, came there at this point they're not really called the Israelites because they haven't gone into the promised land but they're the sons the descendants the tribes though about about to be the tribes of Israel they're still still a family at this point in Israel's history that they have all ended up in Egypt but we need to understand that God brought Israel into Egypt even though it doesn't say that in our text and in fact it doesn't quite 
say that in the parallel text in Genesis 46. In Genesis 46, verses 26 and 27, that's really what is being said in Exodus 1, 1 through 5 is really a summary of, of these couple verses. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So they came to Egypt. There were 70 of them. They ended up in Egypt, not counting the wives. So that seems pretty simple. They just happened to end up there. But of course, if you've read Genesis, you know that they did not just happen to end up there. Joseph, Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, summarized everything that happened to him, summarized everything that happened to his family, really, in some sense, going all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis, when he says at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant everything that happened in Genesis. And ultimately, of course, he, he meant it for good. Everything in particular, Joseph is talking about that happened to him. Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, who was a prophet and who by prophecy, by the Lord's vision, saw a vision of what would happen with him, how the Lord was going to use him, and therefore really drove his brothers up a tree. And so his brothers did what brothers do, which is to say, beat him and threw him into a pit. And so he ended up in Egypt, sold as a slave. And through a series of completely random coincidences and fortuitous events, ends up as a prime minister of Egypt. Now, why did that happen? Why, why did all that happen? Well, it happened, as Joseph says, because the Lord meant it for good for the preserving of the lives of many people, because as prime minister of Egypt, Joseph, again, a prophet of the Lord, was able to foresee by a vision given through to him through the Pharaoh that there would be a famine. And so he stored up wealth in Egypt so that Egypt became the breadbasket of the known world, became the most powerful nation in the world so that the people of Egypt could survive, so the people of the surrounding Mediterranean region could survive these years of famine like no one had ever seen before. It was God's plan that, Israel would, that the sons of Israel would all end up in Egypt so that they might be preserved, so their lives might be saved. They were in the land. They were in the land of Canaan, which had been promised to their forefathers. But now they're living in Egypt. And that already suggests to us where we're going to be going in the book of Exodus and where we're going to be going in the sermon in a few minutes. That as they have departed from the land, they're eventually going to want to return there. But from what we've seen already in verses 1 through 5 then, as Joseph dies, that that does not mean that God's people have disappeared. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. God was done with them, but he was not done with his church because God's church 
will not perish. Jacob's family, his descendants, his 12 sons, had many heirs. God preserved his family because he had plans for their heirs. Indeed, it's, we read in verse 5, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob. Now, why all the persons? Why underscore that? Not one was lost. God kept all of them. God preserved all of them. And here we also need to see how the Lord works in the world. Through Joseph, who became, as I said, the prime minister of Egypt. He was the most powerful man in the world, and to a great extent, though Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, was greater than him in rank, it was really Joseph who was ruling what was then, what, what became under his rule, the most powerful nation in the world. He changed geopolitical history, right? That's what we need to see. It may not be obvious to you as you read through the book of Genesis, but what Genesis tells us is that through the famine, the entire known world at that time, the Mediterranean basin, was impoverished. And it was only the Egyptians who had the storehouses of grain and the wealth to help people survive. And it rose to great prominence. And it became the most powerful nation in the world, all through the foresight given by God to Joseph. All of this happened in the big scheme of things so that Jacob's family, the, the, the descendants of, of, of Israel, Israel was, was Jacob's nickname, so that they could be preserved, so that they could be kept alive. And once you see that, then you understand how we ought to understand history, full stop. Because why do nations rise and why do nations fall? It is so that God's church may be preserved. We may live in the greatest country in the history of the world, and being as I am an American, I tend to think that we live in the greatest country in the history of the world, the most blessed country in the history of the world, the most powerful nation in the history of the world that stands as a shining beacon on the hill to all the nations, and yet the only reason any of that could possibly be true is so that the Lord would preserve His church, because we don't read the Bible so that we might think great things about Egypt, but so that we might see God's care for His people. That throughout history, whatever God is doing in nations and kingdoms with kings and potentates, it has nothing to do with them, ultimately. It has to do with the family, with a few people who barely rate a mention, who are little noticed. I mean, do you honestly think that all the Egyptians were paying attention to this one particular family that wandered over from Canaan during this time of famine amongst the throngs of refugees who came to Egypt? And there were throngs of refugees coming into Egypt. We read that in Genesis. People from throughout the nations were coming. This is just 70 amongst I don't know how many of the refugees who resettled in Egypt during the time of this famine. But why? because God was preserving them, because God had plans for them and had plans for their descendants after them. The church does not rate a mention in this world, because a church is weak and is scorned by the world and the powerful, those who make decisions. 
The church and her people are often persecuted and are persecuted today. One of the, I'm not, as uh, Pastor Chad mentioned, I'm an officer uh, in another denomination, a sister denomination of the PCA, the, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we've had a mission in Ethiopia and Eritrea for a number of decades, and I just got notice a couple weeks ago that uh, one of the saints there was martyred because he would not renounce his faith in Jesus Christ two weeks ago. The martyrdom was not 2,000 years ago. It's, it's now. It's today. It's not in this country, but it's around the world. The church is always weak. The church is always persecuted. The church has never not been weak, has never not been persecuted, and yet the Lord preserves his church. He preserves his church, and she cannot be destroyed. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. The Lord has plans for his people. The Lord is watching over her. And so, beloved, your future is secure because God preserves his church. And so our text takes us from Genesis toward the Exodus, where we'll see that God will bless his church. And when I say toward the Exodus, I don't mean the book of Exodus. I mean the Exodus, the departure from Egypt out on the journey towards the promised land. It's interesting to me, at least, that we have a whole book called Exodus. It takes, it's 40 chapters long, and the actual Exodus, the actual departure, uh, them leaving, the, the exit actually only takes up a couple chapters in the whole book. But the reason we call it Exodus is because that's the whole point. That's the central theme of this book of the Bible. And so we read in verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So what can we learn from that verse? Well, we can learn that God made Israel grow in Egypt. I went to seminary so I could figure that out. Uh, but that's an obvious thing, but that's, we can dwell on it for a second. Dwell on it for a second. This language that is used here has echoes in other parts of the Bible. Uh, they were fruitful, increased greatly, and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so the land was filled with them. That's language, that's, that language evokes other portions of the Bible that talk about insects, uh, bugs, locusts coming and swarming, and there being a, a vast horde of them covering the face of the earth. That's the idea there. Not to say that the, the, the Hebrews or the Israelites were, were, were insects. We're not supposed to think that, but we think that, that number, there's vast there's so many of them. This fact they cover the land. That's the idea that God caused them to grow extraordinarily. And, and what we need to get here is that though there is, of course, there's natural reproduction, that, it, that you start off with 70 people over the course of uh, a number of centuries. Those people are going to multiply, yet the Lord caused them to multiply even more than might be normal. Even in the ancient world, it wasn't totally normal for somebody to have 12 sons and a bunch of daughters besides. That's a lot. Uh, that's, that's, that's more than a white band can carry. Uh, and so that's, that, that's a lot of people. And so the Lord was causing them to be fruitful and to multiply extraordinarily. And that's all the verse says. But of course, but of course that raises the question, why did God make Israel grow? 
There's always a reason that God does these things, because, of course, it is God who is doing them. Genesis 50, 20, God meant it, right? That's, that's what we can say about everything that happens. God meant it. God meant it. And we don't always know why, but when it happens in the Bible, we have a lot of clues as to why. So, why did God make Israel grow? And so, we go back to Genesis because, of course, Exodus is simply carrying on the story that begins in Genesis, and in particular, Genesis 17. In Genesis Genesis 17, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, forefather of Jacob, and a covenant is a promise. God bound himself. He made a promise to, 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 to Abraham. And so I'm going to read from Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. This particular covenant God made with Abraham, he makes in several places in Genesis. He repeats it. So this is the second time that the Lord comes to Abraham to uh, proclaim his covenant, his, his bond, his promise, his commitment to Abraham. And so we read in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you accordingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so, Here the Lord is making a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is a promise, but it's it's like a legal contract. It is oath-bound. There's an oath, a promise, so that the parties have to keep it. And God is the one making it. God tells Abraham, I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, which means simply the father of many, the father of many peoples. And so he says... I will establish my covenant between me and you. In verse 7, this is the key to the covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will be your God. I will be your God. I will be God to you and to your descendants after you, to you and to your children after you. That's the covenant that God makes with Abraham. That is why... Joseph can say, as a descendant of Abraham in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, because God always means it, because God is always in control of what is happening, and he has promised to be God to the descendants of Abraham. But there's more to the covenant than just that. There's two specific promises that the Lord reiterates uh, in, this, in, this, in this covenant. Uh, one is that there will be many descendants, right? We've, we've missed the point of changing Abram's name to Abraham if we don't focus on the fact that there have to be many. You will be the father of many peoples. And so 
he is, uh, he is, if, if he is to be, rather, if he is to be the father of many descendants, there have to be many descendants. And so we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, that there were many descendants. God is keeping his promise. There are many descendants, but that's not the only part of the promise in verse 8. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. These many descendants will be given this land in which you are currently living, Abraham, the land of Canaan. And so we realize, as we read Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, if there's two major promises two major conditions attached to this covenant that God made with Abraham. One is many descendants, and the other is the land of Canaan. And the first has been kept. We should be prepared for the second to come as well. And so the time is at hand for the Lord's people to be able to take that promised land. But that is not the only promise that the Lord, those are not the only promises, rather, the Lord attached to this covenant. As I said, the Lord made this covenant with Abraham several times. Uh, the second time is in Genesis 17. Another occasion is in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, that's, the, that's where Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And that's an entirely another sermon series. Uh, and so as a Presbyterian preacher. I am now tempted to preach that entire sermon series, uh, but Chad said I had 30 minutes, um, so I won't. But, but let me summarize. Let me summarize. Uh, God, is, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. Uh, he does not. Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, but God stays his hand and gives a substitute sacrifice of a ram. And then he declares the promise again through the angel of the Lord, who, of course, is the Lord God himself. And he declares in Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have, with, you have done this thing, if not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, notice that there's a change in emphasis. We have many nations, many peoples will descend from you. That's the promise that God makes through Abraham. But now that promise becomes universal. Universal because it's all the nations. In you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because what the angel said, Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. Because when the Lord says in Genesis 22, through your seed, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That calls to mind an earlier mention of the seed in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and the Lord declares judgment and promise. The greatest promise that the Lord gives 
appears in the midst of the curse on the serpent, where he says in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Abraham's seed will be the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, the child of Eve, the descendant of Eve who will come, who will come through Abraham and through his family will crush the head of the serpent. And through him shall all the nations be blessed. Because, of course, the seed of the woman is the child who was born that day in Bethlehem, whom the angels declared to the shepherds as they watched over their flocks by night. And in his birth, in his birth was, in fact, glad tidings of great joy, which are for all people. Because, of course, in him, in the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, is the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, whom the ram, the substitute ram sacrifice prefigured when he was crucified on the cross for your sins, not simply for the sins of Isaac, because after all, Isaac is a sinner deserved to die, just as Abraham, his father, is a sinner deserved to die, and just as you as a sinner deserved to die for your sins. The seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified and died and was buried in your place, and so was raised from the grave on the third day as your representative and as the promise of resurrection, so that all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ have become the seed of the descendants of Abraham who received the promise, I will be your God. I am God to you and to your children after you. And so Exodus 1, verse 7 when we read that the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Tell us that the Lord is a God who fulfills his promises, who made a covenant with Abraham and therefore saved you from your sins. And therefore the book of Exodus will demonstrate God's faithfulness to all the promises he makes to his people. Beloved, God will bless you because all of his promises are in Jesus Christ. Blessings of descendants, blessings of land are pictures, are pictures and prefigurements and foreshadowings of all the complete riches which you have now in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are yes and amen in him. What you have is him. What you have is Jesus, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham. In him, in him and in your union with him, the fact that you've been united to him by his spirit, in him you have complete forgiveness of sins. In him you are clothed in his righteousness because of him, because of Jesus. 
you will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Not a plot of land to the east of the Mediterranean, but the resurrection, a raised and transformed creation itself. And so your salvation and future are secure because they rest in Christ's work. Look back. You want to look back at the year which has just gone by. We look forward to the year that is to come. And if you look back, it's not been a particularly good year or two. But if that's all we see, it's all we see, then you've not been properly oriented in the text and in the works of our Lord. Because whatever has come over the last year or so, no matter how bad it has been, it has been worse for God's people, and it has been better for God's people, but that's not the point. The point is not the here and now. The point, rather, is what our Lord did on Calvary and what He will do on the last day. And we look back to His death, burial, and resurrection so that we might know for certain that He shall return in glory on that last day and bring you into His resurrection. God is faithful, and He has sustained His church through many trials. And it's worth understanding then that the Lord has kept this world going so that He might preserve His church, so that He might continue to gather a people for Himself. And when you ask the question, how long, O Lord, how long? Why do we have to keep on going? Why doesn't God just call us all up into heaven? It's so that He might continue to draw out of the nations many descendants of Abraham to be His children. And that is why we wait, because God is preserving and gathering His church. It is not enough for the Lord to preserve His people as He preserved the descendants of Israel, of Jacob. He multiplies and grows His people because God does not want a merely preserved church. He wants a vibrant and thriving and growing church. And what the Lord is doing right now, I don't know. What I do know, and what you know, is God meant it. God meant it. God meant all that has occurred for now. God meant all that you have been through in the last couple of years for now, for this moment. And what is God doing in this particular congregation? Why has He preserved this church as part of His church? Because the Lord is using this church as He is using every faithful congregation of His church to gather in the nations that all might be blessed in Him. And it's for us then, as we look forward to the year to come, not to wonder simply about the course of the pandemic, not to wonder about uh, jobs and kids and marriages and deaths. All those things are worth wondering about and planning for. 
But it's to realize that we are here at this moment, heirs of all that the Lord has done, who are preparing for all that the Lord will do as his faithful servants, to look forward, to look forward to what is yet to come because he has meant it for good. And therefore, now, beloved, you can rest. You can look forward because you rest and rest secure in God's promises to you because they have already been brought about through the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, today, this week, always, every day, orient yourself toward God's promises to you in Jesus Christ. Beloved, look forward in hope because God will take care of you. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks for your great mercies that as you made a covenant with Abraham, you bound yourself to it, not because of his faithfulness, but because of your faithfulness. And so we are heirs of all promises, of all the promises that you made to Abraham through your spirit. We have become his descendants. And so we pray that we may be faithful in following the calling that you placed on him and on all your people, that we might look forward in hope, and we look forward then with great joy to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.